0: Good morning. As Zach has mentioned, we are in a new teaching series. Am I, am I on? Can you hear me? Okay, it must just be me. Um, we are in a new teaching series about prayer, entitled Praying Dangerous Prayers. And I, I want to remind you that um, the title of the series comes from the fact that when we invite God into our circumstance, um, that invites danger. And today I want to I want to talk about a particular kind of prayer, which may be um, the most common prayer we pray. Lord bless me. Lord bless me. Bless what I'm about to do. Bless where we're about to go. Keep us safe. Bless the. Uh, the project that's in front of me, bless the work that I have set aside to do, bless my family, uh, bless me, Lord. Maybe the very most common prayer we ever pray, and yet possibly more dangerous than we realize. There is a man who prayed for blessing. And his story, part of his story is recorded in the 32nd chapter of Genesis. Is a man who literally lived on the run. And for that reason, his story is relevant for us because we are nothing if not a generation who lives on the run. We are always busy. We're always off to the next thing. We're always preoccupied with, with something else. We have conversations that say things like, uh, how you doing? Well... Just trying to keep my head above water. How you doing? Well, I'm just running like a chicken with his head cut off. That's a regional thing, I imagine. How you doing? Well, I'm just busier than ever. We're a generation on the run. In the Old Testament, there was a man named Jacob who lived that way. He was literally born on the run, trying to outfox everyone around him. He ran from his brother Esau, he ran from his father-in-law Laban, all the time he was really running from himself. Yet one day in his story, he came to a place where he was out of resources. He had nothing left that he could use to get his way, to, to trick his opponents, to arrange circumstances favorably. He ran into God. And that moment, the man who wanted to be blessed saw everything about his life changed. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. And let me set the stage for this story about Jacob. Jacob was a young man uh, born as a twin brother, clinging to his older brother's heel. When he was born, he was given a promise that God would certainly bless him. In fact, uh, God decided that Jacob was the one through whom the promise that he had made to Abraham would be carried out. There was Abraham, God fulfilled the promise to Abraham by giving him a son Isaac in his old age, supernatural intervention. And then to Isaac, God gave two sons, Jacob and Esau. Everything was stacked culturally against Jacob. He uh, was not the firstborn son, so he didn't have the right of inheritance. He was not his father's favorite, but rather his mother's favorite, which worked against his ability to receive uh, the blessing that he had hoped to have at the end of his life, uh, by by the end of his father's life. Um, And yet God told him at his birth, that he was gonna be blessed. Jacob is a man who spent a lifetime attempting to gain the promise by deception and superstition rather than trusting God's word. He struggled half his life to gain what God had already promised him anyway. We've seen God again renew that promise. Jacob is born in Genesis chapter 25. God renews the promise uh, in Genesis chapter 28, but there uh, he adopts kind of a wait-and-see attitude about it. He lived his life by a philosophy. If God comes through, then I'll have peace. The problem is peace never comes to the person whose faith says if, God shows up. Jacob believed in God. He even attempted to worship God. But his entire life strategy was to handle things himself, what we've called here a practical atheist. You see, Jacob bargained for his birthright. He used tricks to get his father's blessing He left home in fear. He suffered under virtual slavery to a father-in-law who was deceptive. And then having left home in fear, he returns home in fear. Hardly the man whose life exhibited the blessing that had been promised to him at his birth. And yet his entire life, he just wanted one thing. He wanted what God had promised him. And so we come to Genesis chapter 32. Jacob has left his father-in-law, he now has two wives, he has sons by both wives, and he decides it's time to return home, only to discover on the way there that his brother Esau, the brother that uh, that he wronged in so many ways, that Esau knows Jacob is coming home, And he is marching out to meet him with 400 armed men. And Jacob realizes that for the first time in his life, he's run out of options. And so Jacob does what Jacob does. And he develops a strategy. And he puts gifts in the hands of his servants. And he sends his servants on ahead to essentially bribe his brother Esau, to buy him off, to, to soothe his anger. And then he takes his families and, he, and he, he divides his families and all of his servants and all of his possessions into two groups. And he sends them on ahead. And he tells his wives, it'll be okay, I'll, I'll come along, I'll be behind you, I'll be right behind you. Born leader. I'll be right behind you. But then he thinks to himself, I'll send all of my possessions, all my family, all my servants, I'll send them in two groups. And if my brother attacks one of the groups and destroys them, at least the other group will live. I mean, this is is the definition of of worldly strategy because he's got nothing left. He's just got to figure out how to salvage this situation, a situation of conflict with his brother that's probably been coming for decades. And he sends everybody off to hopefully appease Esau's anger. And Jacob, maybe for the first time in a long time, finally finds himself alone. And that's where our story picks up. Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 24. It says, then Jacob was left alone. It's interesting that the story starts with that statement. Everything that Jacob had, everything that he had earned, everything that he had stolen, everything that he had acquired, he's now sent on ahead as some sort of bribe to appease his brother. And he's left with the only thing that's really his, his life. It's interesting, left alone. The only way of gaining knowledge of ourselves, actually, is to be left alone with God. That's why, for the most part, we avoid quiet. We avoid aloneness. We avoid isolation. Because when we're alone, when there's no assault of noise and sound and information. We're left to think about things that we often try not to think about. We often come home, we're all pretty much alike. You you come home and the house is empty and no one is there. And and what do you do? You flip on the television. Because you wanna watch something? No, because you want the noise because we're scared to death of quiet. That's why, that's why I still try and refer to devotional time, prayer time, time in the Word. I still refer to it as quiet time. It's kind of a, a quaint name. It was popular back in the 70s. It sort of lost its, uh, its appeal. And yet for me, it's a reminder that God is not to be found in the hustle and the bustle. Uh, God, God meets me when I'm quiet enough to hear him speak. Jacob was left alone. Verse 24. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have contended with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the tendon of the hip, which is on the socket of the hip, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the tendon of the hip. I've started this message with this point that seems odd, but it is accurate. When God attacks. You see, the reality here is that what happened to Jacob on this day was not the result of persistent prayer. It's not that Jacob had been seeking God. It's not that he had set aside a a day to, to, to come into the presence of God. This was for him an unexpected encounter. And yet all of the circumstances of his life had just been arranged, Jacob thought arranged by himself. It turns out God was providentially putting Jacob in a position where he was left alone. Notice the language there. It didn't say Jacob stayed alone. It's passive. He was left alone. Someone else coordinated the circumstances of his life, and he found himself alone, and it simply says a man wrestled with him. What's interesting here is Jacob is not the aggressor, but he had no choice. Unlike boxing or fistfights, wrestling leaves no option for running away. Someone came to Jacob in that lonely place and he grappled. There was no escape. There was no running away. There was no ability to create distance. You see, what this story shows us is that God brought to bear in a moment's time Jacob's story of an entire lifetime. He had been boxing with God, if you will. Contending for his own will, doing things in his own way. Determining his own priorities, his own actions, setting his own agenda. Yet he believed in God, but he kept God with 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 jabs and 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 and, and boxing. He he kept him at arm's distance. And so God shows up one day and he says, No, 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 no more boxing. We're gonna grapple. The man that approached Jacob in that lonely place where there's no explanation. This is one of those passages of Scripture that is interpreted in hundreds of different ways, literally, because people are trying to figure out who the man was. If we go over to the book of Hosea, Hosea, the prophet, gives us some insight. Hosea chapter 12, verses, let's see. Verses 3 and 4. Speaking about Jacob, the prophet Hosea says this, In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his mature strength he contended with God, and he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and implored his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Hosea says that Jacob contended or wrestled with God and then goes on to say that he, um, that he prevailed with an angel. Now, that shouldn't create confusion because in the Old Testament, the name of God was so sacred as to never be spoken out loud. It was never spoken in, in proper Jewish culture. And when the scribes would write the when they would make copies of the Old Testament text, particularly the, the Torah, the book of the of the, the books of the law, the Torah, when they came to the name of God, they would use a brand new pen that had never been used before, and they would write the name of God, and then they would set it aside and take a normal pen to write the rest of the text. In other words, the name of God had such extraordinary reverence attached to it that it's not that it's, it's very common in the Old Testament when speaking of God to use the substitute term angel because it was a, a way to acknowledge angels, even actual angels are, are merely extensions of God in the sense that they are messengers assigned a particular duty. Here, we're told uh, that that he wrestled with an angel, but Jacob's own words says, "I've seen the face of God and I've survived." Jo- Hosea tells us he he contended or wrestled with God and prevailed over the angel. It, it's it, it's a it's a roundabout way to say that God, in some sort of pre-incarnate representation, that's. That's that's fancy talk, but it, it means those places in scripture, in Old Testament scripture, where Jesus makes an appearance in physical form before he is actually uh, incarnated into human uh, existence in in the 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 Bethlehem Christmas story. It happens in other places. Uh, when Nebuchadnezzar looked at uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, he said, how many people did we throw into that fire? And he said, we threw in three. And he goes, well, there's four guys in there now and they're all walking around and talking to each other. See, that's a, that's a pre-existent, pre-incarnate appearance of, of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity in human form. That's what's happening, I think, in this chapter with, with Jacob is that God has represented himself physically and and also uh, his reluctance, not his reluctance, his refusal uh, to give Jacob his name. Uh, When when the Lord appeared in the Old Testament, uh, he never announced his name. Angels um, would be more likely to give a name to that kind of uh, questioning, but but what happens here is that God has met, he's arranged the circumstances so that Jacob is left alone and he comes and he wrestles with him. This has been coming for a lifetime because because Jacob has been uh, boxing with God, uh, struggling to resist God his whole life. But now the time has come there's nothing else. there are, are no end games, there are no uh, alternatives. Jacob is at the end of his resources. He has no options. He's used up all of the the possibilities that he can. And he finds himself alone with nothing but what he came into the world with. And a man came and wrestled with him until daybreak. Well... Verse 25 tells us, when the man saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was dislocated while he wrestled with him. This is an an extraordinary uh, verse if in fact this is God that's doing the wrestling because um, Jacob's determination to be his own man was so fierce that at no point is he yet willing to give up. You say, well, he he beat God? Well, okay, let's, let's balance that. God could have just blinked and taken Jacob out. But he met Jacob where he was. You see, the whole point of the incarnation in the New Testament is that God met us where we are. In the Old Testament, God often met with his people in thunder and lightning and fire and cloud up on the top of a a mountain. Uh, When God's presence was on the mountain and the people of Israel were gathered around the base of the mountain, it said that the mountain would actually shake as the thunder rumbled. People wouldn't even touch the base of the mountain because they were so frightened. The presence of God was such that they would rather be distant from God than risk being close. But the point of creation was God created us so that we could be close. We could be in relationship. But our sinful selves and his incredible awesomeness could never come together, could never match up. So God came down from the mountain, and He put Himself in human flesh, and He spoke with a Judean accent, and He let us understand that He loves us. God came to Jacob in a way that Jacob could finally comprehend the battle that had been going on in his life forever. And in this moment, God does what he does so well, which is Jacob is not going to back down. His rebel spirit is is his whole identity. And so in that contest, God touches his hip, probably dislocated his hip or tore the tendon, so that Jacob is weakened. He can't maintain the battle because he doesn't have the strength that he's always relied upon. He doesn't have the sufficiency that he's always thought was endless. The last thing that he had was himself and even now he doesn't have that. He touched the socket of Jacob's hip and and it was dislocated. And then we find Jacob for the first time in his life learning how to win. He wins by losing. Verse 26. Then he said, Let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He was unable to wrestle. His hip is dislocated. Now all he can do is cling. All he can do is hold on. Jacob had lived by the creed, never trust anyone. Now he comes to the awful awareness that this contender is the God that he's always kept at a safe distance. Somewhere in the course of this night, somewhere in the battle, Jacob begins to understand just who this this opponent is, just who this man is that he's been grappling with. God's always been at a safe distance, but now he's right here. He's, he, he's so close that I can touch him. Only now Jacob finds that he's injured. He's out of strength. He's exhausted. He has no other hope. We use phrases like, well, I'm, I'm just at the end of my rope. I, I don't know what I'm going to do now. That's Jacob, the end of his rope out of ideas, out of options, out of resources. And so he does what we should all do. He holds on to God for dear life. I will not let you go unless you bless me. These are the words God has waited over 40 years to hear from Jacob. Jacob finally conquered his fear by giving everything up to God. Jacob represents so many Christians. I've seen this in churches that I've been in my whole life. People say things like, well, I've tried everything. I guess now it's up to God. Hadn't it always been up to God? But for some reason, until we've tried everything, the option of coming to God with our need doesn't even come into our head. It's our last resort. <laughs> I heard a story of a, a pastor tell a story about his church. It wasn't my church, but he said that they were that the church was in financial distress, and and they had done everything they could do. They'd had a fall festival, garage sale, and bake sale, and they had. They had sent out pledge, pledge cards and, and they'd done everything and, and they were just having trouble. They couldn't pay their bills. And finally the pastor was there in a deacon's meeting and he said, gentlemen, um, we've got nothing last, left to do. We, we need to pray. <laughs> to which one of his deacons said, pastor, has it come to that? But you see, when we ask God to bless us, that's the only thing Jacob ever really wanted. But it's the very thing God had already promised him. I'm going to bless you. The promise that I made to your grandfather Abraham, I'm going to carry that promise through you you're going to be the father of the 12 sons who become the patriarchs of the tribes. What started with Abraham and and continued with the son of promise that he got in his old age and and now is is through you, not the, the oldest, not the strongest, not your father's favorite, not the one with any advantages, but the one that I've chosen. I'm going to make you the one that carries on the promise. I'm going to give you 12 sons. There's going to be a nation, and the nation will bless the whole world. And out of that nation, through you, Jacob, will come the Messiah, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. It's the only thing Jacob had ever wanted. Bless me but he had to get to the place where he's run out of options. He has no other choices. He's manipulated, he's tricked, he's cheated, he's lied. And it's come to this. I'm holding on for dear life because I got no other choice. Bless me. We miss this as a prayer because he's not kneeling quietly in a in a a private place. It's it, it doesn't fit our image of prayer. But I'm telling you, this cry in the middle of a wrestling match with God bless me. I won't let you go until you bless me. It is his prayer that says, "I'm done. I've tried everything." I'm afraid my own brother probably wants to kill me. By the end of the day, I may have nothing left of everything I've accumulated over all of these years. The only thing I have is the hope that you will bless me. The only way Jacob could ever finally win was by losing. I guess there's nothing left to do but to trust the Lord. Here's the problem. We let our trust in God come too late in the process. It should come early. Understand this, God never wants to take us to the place of extreme distress. That's not the plan. He, he doesn't want us to have to learn that way. What he wants is for us to approach him and say, I, I'm going to cling to you. I'm not going to push you away. I'm not going to keep you at arm's length. I'm going to hold tight because I can't do anything unless you do it in me. Why do we wait when the message of the Bible is that we win by losing? See, Christianity Christianity is backwards from the world. The first are last, and the last are first. It's the meek who inherit the earth. It's the humble who find a place with God. It's the proud that God resists. You see, we can tell that we are operating in a worldly fashion when we make our decisions, when we plan our strategies, when we live our lives according to the way everybody else does it. We win by losing. Jesus Christ came in human flesh and they said, we've been waiting for the Messiah. Pick up a sword, lead us against Rome. Make your people controllers, rulers over the whole earth. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to the cross. The cross had all the appearance of an utter defeat. Except in the way that God does things. It was the only victory that could make things different. We have to literally quit asking God to bless us as we function like the world around us. And we have to begin to develop the process of living by a standard, by a model that is absolutely countercultural to everything that our world knows. I just finished this week teaching the winter Bible study and it was the Sermon on the Mount. If you couldn't be a part of it, let me invite you to go back and listen to those lessons because the Sermon on the Mount is this description of the life of an authentic disciple. And it is it is upside down compared to what the world teaches. But it is the way of the people of God. It is the way that we cling to him and he blesses us. Look at what happens here in this story. The result of this battle and of this prayer is we have a better man and he has a bigger God. In verse 27 it says, "'So he said to him, what is your name?' And he said, "'Jacob.' Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have contended with God and with men and have prevailed. He had, out of this this battle, he receives a new name, but the gift of a new name indicates that he also has a new character. Listen, it's natural to plan and to scheme in life because frankly, we see ourselves as competent to make our own way. That's the temptation I got this, I can do this, this makes sense, I'm smart enough, I'm I'm experienced enough, I'm competent enough. And yet Jacob, whose name means trickster or cheater or deceiver, he gets a new name, the name is Israel. Israel means God battles. God strives. Let me tell you, our choice is this. We can either create our own messes and clean up our own messes by our own brilliant stupidity. Or we can rest in Christ and let God do battle for us. Jacob, dude, you've spent your whole life trying to make things work out for yourself? What if you just rested in the God who promises to take care of you? What if you let your character be marked by trusting in the God who does battle for you? His name becomes Israel, meaning that God strives or God battles. And this is now a man who sees God, not as an opponent to be kept at arm's length, but as the the God who is the key to everything in his life. Jacob becomes Israel and begins to lean into God. He has a new name and a new character, but he also has a new power and a new testimony. It says in verse 29, Jacob asked him, tell me your name. He said, why do you want to know my name? But he says he blessed him there. Verse 30. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. You see, he never had peace in the present or confidence in his future until now. Why? Because he met God face to face, he had a new testimony. I don't just know about God. I don't just go to church and and hear about God. I don't just hear what other people say about God. I've met God. Everything in my life is changed because of that encounter. I tell you, this is... I hesitate to even say this. This has come home for me. Teaching the Sermon on the Mount this week. Man, I love to teach the Bible, but I'll tell you what. um, Sometimes the Bible just rakes me over the coals. And one of the things that I had to do yesterday, knowing that this sermon was coming today and finishing the Sermon on the Mount all through last week, it just, It just struck me that I've become pretty good. I'm disciplined in some ways, um, I've become pretty good. I've become real good, frankly, at managing my sin. And the Sermon on the Mount reminded me that that's not the life I'm called to live. Managing my sin so that I'm outwardly respectable. See, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is that when there's darkness in your heart, that's what God notices. And so like Jacob, yesterday I had to find myself in a place to say, Lord, I'm, I'm tired of managing sin. I want to be pure and holy all the way through. I want to win by losing. I want to give up control And I want God to live the crucified life through me. Jacob never had peace in the present. He never had confidence in his future until he figured out that God was the one who must be in charge of his life. He also has a dislocated hip which produced a permanent limp. Let me tell you about that. A quote that has really hit me hard comes from John R. W. Stott, an Anglican theologian. He made this remark on this passage, all God's great men, all God's great men walk with a limp. For Paul, it was a thorn in the flesh. But for all of us, there is some reminder that we are not sufficient in ourselves. There is something that that we're embarrassed about, something that we wish was different about ourselves. It's the constant call to find our way back to clinging to God Israel's new limp was a constant reminder of his own weakness and the need that he had to rely on God for the rest of his life. Listen, his clinging to God did not stop with this wrestling match. It became his new approach to life. Nothing hinders our spiritual growth so much as our confidence in our natural strength. Nothing keeps us from being holy more than our determination to manage our sin. Self-reliance is a deadly disease that stops spiritual maturity in its tracks. If you read chapter 33, what you find out is that The next day, the sun comes up, his contestant disappears. Now Esau has to, now Jacob has to face Esau, but today he's Israel. You know what he does? He, he sets out his plan for how everybody's gonna approach. And then the most remarkable thing happens. In chapter 33, It says, he divided the children, verse one, he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two slave women. He put the slave women and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. See, Jacob was at the end of the train. Don't worry, dear, I'll be right behind you. Only now, Jacob... Is in the front. He's gonna lead. He's gonna march forward. He's gonna take the brunt of whatever comes. Why? Because he has met with God. And everything in his life is different. His instincts are changed. His strategies are set aside. He's now becoming the man that God has meant for him to be. His new strategy for meeting Esau, he's now in front rather than bringing up the rear. So here's the question. Have you been wrestling with God? Has he attacked you in a way that you can no longer keep him at arm's length, but he is insisting that he be in your way? What makes you resist? Are you greedy for getting more than you have? God has gifts that you haven't even begun to explore. Are you afraid Of what the future holds, God has a peace that is beyond comprehension. Do you just want to be in control of your own life? His perfect competence is available to unfold the plan that He designed you for. Lord, bless me. The next time you pray, Lord, bless me. Remember. It's a prayer that invites God to get in real close to you. Highlight your weaknesses so that you never lose sight of His strength. Same thing goes for a church. Lord, bless this church. But let me tell you something. When God shows up to bless this church, it means He's going to make us a little uncomfortable. He's gonna grapple with us because he doesn't just want a nice, polite church that he has blessed. He wants an army made up of people who are serious about living this life. He wants the crucified life lived through each one of us and he's gonna get uncomfortably close until we become who he meant for us to be. That's what it means when we say, dear Lord, bless me. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that this story as it unfolds in our mind, as your spirit continues to instruct us, we will recognize um, all that you are meaning for us to draw from this. Father, we do yearn for blessing, but we understand that that means that things are going to be different, that you're going to require of us something that we may have not contemplated, but we want it. We want what you have because we believe that your plan is always better than ours. So Father, come into this place. Find a people whose hearts are pursuing you, are clinging to you, and bring your blessing. Father, with all that that means, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.